0: I thought I'd explore questions again this afternoon. There have been plenty left <laughs> over the last few days. But I thought I'd start with first um, following up on this morning's question a little bit, just to restate. The pieces of it that I'm uh, looking at this afternoon, um, uh, this morning Arthur was talking about uh, seeing change, Give, giving the example of um, noticing the diminishment of pills in a bag and empty bags and recognizing that this is connected to the passage of time and the uh, ending of the retreat that was one piece of the of the um recognition around impermanence and this is um one piece to point to here is the connection between um you know something simple like watching the diminishment of quantity and understanding a meaning that it means time is passing and that further we understand a number of days left in the retreat and so this is a complex thing that our minds are doing and then also he described another side of the experience of recognizing the mind starting to um, thoughts about after the retreat, um, thinking about things that he would enjoy doing. So there was some pleasure in that and yet there was also as I understood it some sense that uh, he didn't want these things to be happening so much. Um, and so I just thought I'd speak about the uh, these pieces and you know basically in particular noticing future thoughts and as it relates to the ending of the retreat and uh, you know how do we relate to that how do we work with it as a practice there can be a tendency to want to just say well let me stop those thoughts let me just stop having those thoughts but anybody try that (laughs) You know, that's not so easy. Sometimes I think our relationship to those kinds of thoughts um, depends on the kind of practice we're doing. You know, if we're doing a focused practice, a concentration practice, the instruction would be set them aside and come back to the breath, you know? Just as much as possible, don't let any energy go there. Just keep coming back to the work that we're doing here, which is cultivating very um, precise attention on a certain experience in the present moment. With this practice, we are cultivating, recognizing what our minds are doing. And that includes the thinking of future thoughts. It's very natural for that to start happening at a certain point in retreat. It's very natural for our minds to track time in this way and to begin to kind of count down and recognize, you know, how many days are left or uh, how much time do I have left on retreat or how long is it till I can do that fun thing. It's very natural for our minds to do this very, very... um uh, it's kind of an amazing thing that it does this when you think about it it's uh you know it's the process it is a perceptual process that recognizes the passage of time and understands something about what time means and so as those uh mental perceptions arise, the perception of you know seeing the diminishment of the of the pills and then recognizing that means so many days left, that the mind starts thinking about the end of the retreat. At one point um, on a long retreat, I, 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 it was maybe a couple weeks before the end of the retreat and I went in and told Joseph, you know, I'm just seeing myself thinking about the future. He says, well this is the time in the retreat when that happens. Notice it. Notice how the mind creates the future. This is essentially part of what that mind is doing, what those thoughts are doing. They're creating the future. Those are thoughts about the future happening now. What's our relationship to that? What emotions does it evoke? How are we with that? Some of the relationship to thoughts about the future... Uh, In this context, Um, some of it is, you know, kind of the enjoyment. Some of it is the craving to think those thoughts because there's an enjoyment about thinking those thoughts. And then on the other side of it is recognizing that as we uh, crave thinking those thoughts and enjoy thinking those thoughts, our mindfulness gets lost. And we appreciate the mindfulness, and so we resent the thinking of those thoughts. What might it mean to recognize that the mind is thinking these thoughts? And notice, we've been talking about noticing the impact of thinking on our experience. Not, Not always just dismissing the content in favor of noticing the process of thinking, but sometimes recognizing the content and how it lands. I talked about remembering thoughts of friends. And at first thinking, oh, shouldn't be thinking about friends, come back to here and now. Friends aren't here, so come back to here and now. Well, but the thoughts of friends were arising in the present moment. And they were pretty persistent, and so at some point I got curious in the emotion. What's happening around those thoughts? And discovered that the motivator, or the the heart uh, experience around those thoughts was love. And so with future thoughts like that, you're noticing what is the, uh, the emotional tone of that content. You remember things we may do, and that joy, a delight arises. Let yourself feel that. Notice that a mental formation, a thought arising in the present moment has created an emotion. We don't have to stop the process, we need to notice it. It's a huge learning for us to begin to recognize the cause and effect relationship between our minds and our, uh, for our, our, thought, the th- our thoughts and our emotions and our bodies. the idea or the sense of not wanting those thoughts Um, i think that partly comes from the perspective that uh, maybe an old practice perspective that thoughts are in the way of practice after all future thoughts are not about here and now and so i must not be i must i must uh, forget about those thoughts and create a a sense of being here. We can recognize those thoughts as thoughts happening in the present moment, as the phenomenon of a thought about the future happening now. And now, and then it's just part of the now. It's just part of the now, part of what's here, part of what we recognize. I think I also heard in, uh, in the question that there was a kind of a wish to maybe slow down the retreat so that it wouldn't end so fast. I'm not sure if that was part of the question, but um, you know, that's, again, that there, there's some clinging there or some sense of uh, you know, recognizing, there's two, there's, there's two sides to it. There's recognizing the value and the appreciation for the, re- the practice and the, the retreat container and, and understanding how rare it is and so there's a, a kind of a natural, that there's, there's part of this is the, the unworldly unpleasant, you know, it's the recognizing, oh, you know, it's, this is useful and it's going to end. And part of it is clinging, part of it is a, a contraction. We don't have to stop any of it, but really just start to recognize, again, recognize what's happening. We're noticing the retreat, starting to the the indications of the amounts of food we brought, or how many uh, pairs of underwear we have left, or you know socks or vitamins. We notice the the signs, recognize that noticing, and recognize the relationship to the idea that is formed about the end of the retreat. Because the end of the retreat is an idea. I'm going to paraphrase this question. Early in my practice, I read that peace can come from accepting and understanding impermanence. How does that happen? Through an illness, I see impermanence clearly, but instead of peace, I feel anxiety and fear. Opening to impermanence, really taking it in is one of the, uh, it's a hard thing for us to do as human beings, to really deeply let in impermanence at the level of our own mortality that it is really staring us in the face at every moment our our uh, our minds create this concept of the, uh, our lives continuing, kind of like that pile of chard. And we b- believe, we believe that, we, we're we're, we're deluded into feeling like there's some persistence of being. That persistence of being cannot fathom the going out <laughs> or the, the ending, the death of itself. Until we perhaps get close to it, And so, you know, much of the time, much of our lives, we don't really uh, take in that truth of impermanence. And then if something happens to confront us with it, it often is very unsettling. The process of of coming to terms with impermanence, I think it's a life's work, it's a a good part of the work of our practice to come to terms with impermanence. I was talking the other night about how our struggles, our suffering is kind of connected to two threads we have both this uh, kind of a recognition at some level that experience is impermanent, unreliable, and out of control. And another part of our being, you know, so we, we kind of touch into that, especially in our practice or, or with um, the, uh, the recognition of our mortality or the mortality of a dear, a dear one. It kind of comes up. It, we, it, it, it's it's hard to ignore. We cannot ignore it anymore. And so uh, that truth of impermanence kind of rears its head and it kind of comes into conflict with another side of our hearts which is, I want to be safe. I want to be happy. I want to be healthy. The The wishes for happiness, health, safety, and well-being, which are essentially the wishes of metta. And so the the suffering is born as those two meet the recognition of impermanence meeting the wish for well-being and happiness, health, safety, and our mind just can't seem to hold the truth of both of those at the same time. And it, so it resists. It resists the truth, or it somehow feels like I have to squash down that wish for well-being. I have to not want to feel good. I have to not want, I have to somehow deny that, that wish for well-being. And so that, that creates a, a conflict in our hearts. It's hard to open to both of those at the same time but but it is possible to hold both the understanding of the wisdom the truth of impermanent unreliable out of control and the heart that wishes to be happy and peaceful and the heart that wishes for well-being and health and safety for ourselves and our families and all beings. The heart can stretch to hold both. And yet it's a process. So how does it happen that taking an impermanence can allow that stretching to happen so that we're not in conflict anymore? Part of it is by looking at the resistance. Part of the way that this practice unfolds is that we get to see our resistance to the truth. And not denying that, not saying, oh I shouldn't have anxiety and fear because everything's impermanent and I'm supposed to be okay with that no, oh, impermanence, anxiety and fear. Can I open to that, honor that, honor the anxiety and fear as we hold that truth of impermanence. Feel the resistance, feel the the mind screaming no to that truth. feeling the heartbreak of that truth and maybe in the feeling of that fear and anxiety there might be a way to touch into that it is connected with that wish for happiness and safety and well-being at times I've explored that almost consciously at one point in a, a state of fear. I was in a state of fear. It was right after the September 11th attacks and I was on one of the planes that was that flew like the first day or so after this plane started flying again and I got stranded in Houston because of weather. And so I spent the night in Houston and uh, remember George Bush was president at that time. And uh, I was at George Bush International Airport. And staying overnight at George Bush International Airport, there was a power outage. And instantly my mind went to terrorist attack. I mean, what better symbolic gesture than to have an attack on the airport named after the President of the United States. So my mind went. And so there was a lot of fear. And uh, the power outage lasted a long time. It lasted hours. I don't, I don't know, um, you know, how long it lasted. But there was a lot of, a lot of fear. And um, I began using metta as a way to kind of counterbalance that fear because the fear was so strong I couldn't really stay present and I discovered that if I started doing metta that I could be with, I could be with it. And, and I was doing metta for all beings and as I connected to that it's like, may all beings be well, happy and peaceful. It's like my heart went, yes, that's what I want. Yes, that is what I want. And there was a measure of relief in acknowledging that truth, that that is what I wanted. Even as it was counter to the mind, well I mean it was the mind creating the scenario of of terrorist attack, but but even as it is counter to that truth of, we actually don't know at what moment we're going to die. We have no idea. And in that uh, seeing, because I would flip between the fear and the metta and feeling that it was a, a very deep, powerful metta for all beings. That was very natural. And I began to understand in that, that the, the fear and the metta were connected. And that I couldn't just bypass the fear or somehow excise the fear. Because the metta ran very deep. And so I had to honor both. Honor both the fear and the wish for well-being and happiness. And so as we confront our own mortality, the mortality of our families, our friends, there's a lot of resistance to that. And yet the very opening to that resistance begins to open us to the deeper both a deeper understanding of the truth of impermanence and a deeper connection to compassion and love, not only for ourselves but all beings. So it's a process. It's, it's not like automatic that we begin to touch into impermanence and oh of course that's fine. They're very very deep holdings around this at very deep levels of our being. Our being is clinging with its fingernails, trying to stay here. Trying not to have to deal with these truths. We can kind of, hmm, our heart can break over the poignancy of that too. In fact, at some level, actually, the path unfolds, the deepening of the practice unfolds through deeper and deeper levels of connection with impermanence and seeing how we resist the impermanence. Watching our reactivity to impermanence Is firmly on the path as the way the practice unfolds and deepens. Sometimes when impermanence is happening, it's like, wow, that is so cool. Other times when impermanence is happening, it's like, there's nowhere to land. I have no idea what the next moment will be. There's fear, there's anxiety. Talked about stepping off the cliff the other day. It sometimes feels like that, and it's not like it's not like you're saying, "Oh yeah, I'll step off the cliff." But the whole being is going, "No, I can't do that." So there's a there's a deep level of uh, unwinding and releasing that happens, but it doesn't happen by by uh, somehow trying to adopt impermanence and forget about. Uh, the the way that we resist it the practice deepens through watching the the fear the anxiety the terror that sometimes comes around really meeting impermanence and so it levels large and small this is really a whole part of our path And holding ourselves with compassion around it is really helpful. I'll paraphrase this one too. Um, So this is a question about the the writer described an experience where noticing that they were lost in thought or actually noticing after they were lost in thought that they could remember what had happened while they were lost in thought but they were not aware when they were lost in thought and so there was that question coming back the ability to recognize well that that happened and that happened and that happened while the mind was lost in thought, how can that work when we're not aware? How does that work? So this speaks to the way our minds do things kind of on their own without, without, uh actually needing very much of us around. (laughs) Um, So the processes at work in our mind, the processes of the five aggregates that we've been exploring, perception, feeling, and knowing, those three, they carry on whether we are mindful or not. And we, and we see this, uh, the other day I think I gave the example of driving a car and, and how, you know, obviously our mind is taking things in while we're driving. You know, perception is working while we're driving, even though we're not mindful of what we're doing. We're thinking about something else, completely lost in the meeting that we're going to and how we're going to say what we're going to say when we get there, or whatever we're doing with our minds. Completely lost in thought. And yet our minds are functioning in this activity of driving. Knowing is happening, sight is happening, we're not aware of it, sight is happening, perception is happening, we're recognizing the cars, we're recognizing the distance, we're judging the speed. Tremendous amount of stuff going on while we are not aware. And uh, because of those processes, perception is working feeling is working, knowing is working. When mindfulness returns, and perception has been doing its job all along, and so we can, uh, it's kind of like we can kind of ask, okay, perception, what do you remember while I wasn't here? Because those Factors of mind are working, even as we're not mindful. It's a huge difference <laughs> to notice that difference and the, the The five aggregates are are tumbling along, taking care of us actually, you know, making sure we don't walk through walls and you know. Step into holes, and they're also recording things. Not everything, you know. It's not, and it's not like it's a perfect recorder by any means. Um, but there is some measure of recognition that's possible after the fact, because perception, knowing and feeling we're working. I guess that's, that's, that's all I'll say about that for now. I am curious If it is known through research or study, how much time are we actually aware or mindful in meditation for the average person? 50%, 30%? I am unaware of any such study. What I will point to in this question is that there is a kind of uh, sense that we can have not of percentages, but um, uh, there's a kind of a sense that we can have in our experience of the strength of mindfulness, where strength of mindfulness doesn't mean like, uh, you know, it's like, it's not like in a moment I can like really be mindful It's more moments of mindfulness, it's successive moments of mindfulness that create the strength of mindfulness. And the more that we watch our uh, awareness and we get familiar with awareness, the more we can see the kind of, the way mindfulness slips out and comes back. We notice the gaps in mindfulness. And, uh, initially, so initially we may just notice gaps, it's like mindful or not mindful. And as, but as our, um, mindfulness strengthens, as the continuity gets stronger, we begin to have a sense of, like, gradations of mindfulness. And this may be that there is kind of like a mindfulness coming and going in a stretch of time. And so it, it's, uh, it is useful to begin to be curious about you know, a state that I've said Joseph calls more or less mindful, you know, sometimes it feels like we're less mindful. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, there is at times in a, a more or less mindful state, a sense that there is some level of awareness. But it's weak. We can tell that we're kind of caught in thought, but kind of know we're caught in thought. Pulled into the thought, maybe kind of know we're caught in thought, pulled in again. So that it's, it's a little bit less mindful. It's useful to get kind of familiar or cognizant of, of that somewhat less mindful state and begin to get familiar with what it feels like as the, the mindfulness gets stronger as there are, is a little more continuity. And continuity in my experience is not like, um, uh, so. It's, it's not like we kind of, that, that, um, that scooter analogy that I was doing, it's like you, you tap and tap and you go, you know, it's, it's not quite like that because that implies that you know we can do something and just get mindfulness going. And more to me, it feels like there are little bursts of those, uh, I was calling them pockets of mindfulness this morning. You know That there's little bursts of that. And then mindfulness will get lost and then maybe there's another little burst of that. In those bursts of mindfulness, we can begin to recognize, oh, back, here again. And perhaps also begin to get a sense of you know the how strong that mindfulness is, how how uh, how much it's seeing, how much it can um, pick up on. One of the um, most helpful ways in strengthening the continuity of mindfulness, is to really recognize uh, what it feels like for continuity to be there. You know, we have weaker and stronger continuity, we get a sense of that stability of mindfulness, the concentration that comes. And it can come in little bursts. So it's not like you know we're we're working along, and it just slowly gets more and more and more moments of mindfulness all through our day. We have times of the day where it's stronger, times where it's weaker. Getting familiar with the uh, the feeling of that stability when it's there, we can begin to recognize it. Ah, this is what it. This is what that stability of mindfulness feels like. And then we may start to notice wow there's an even stronger stability that's available, and so the the recognition of that stability which is the the factor of concentration we're we're getting familiar with the feeling of concentration in this practice, getting familiar with that feeling of concentration um the familiarity with that state increases the conditions for it to appear more frequently. So we can recognize, recognize the mindfulness that's here and how is that stability? What does that stability feel like? Would you say more about being aware of awareness? How do I know that awareness is what I'm aware of, other than knowing that it is present? Also, I clearly remember Andy Olinsky saying that the mind cannot be aware of itself only of objects. It seems like sophistry to get around this by calling awareness an object. So the way we are exploring awareness of awareness here is actually through knowing how awareness knows objects. I talked about the glasses analogy that um, for those of you who wear glasses, this makes sense. If you don't wear glasses, then imagine that when you've got glasses on, you can see everything clearly. And when you've got glasses off, it's like you're looking through fog. It's like nothing is clear. So when we look through glasses, we typically aren't thinking about the glasses. We're just relating to the experiences that we're seeing. We're, we're, we're looking at the, the objects. We're looking at what we're seeing. But we can begin to recognize, know in a sense that the way, the whole way we have that clarity of seeing is because of the glasses. And we have a sense of what it means to be looking through the glasses knowing that the glasses are how we're seeing things it's kind of like that with awareness of awareness here it's not in this practice not that we're trying to turn around and make awareness an object i often make that gesture of turning to look at Myself or like turning around and having awareness look at itself. I've used the gesture that awareness of awareness feels like stepping back. Where we are aware that the mind is knowing. Because of how it knows the objects. Or because that it knows the objects. Because it knows the objects. And there's a distinct sense or recognition of that uh, understanding or that there's a a clear uh, different experience when we're kind of backed into the awareness it feel it's it's kind of like the difference between the seeing and looking I talked about seeing being much more receptive. We just know that the seeing is happening and looking being the attention going out to see something. Kind of similar, that we're kind of stepped back into um, the uh, knowing of experience. And yet, the objects don't disappear. We still clearly know what's happening out there. But there's a sense of, uh, there's much less of a sense that uh, we're actually landing on any object in particular or knowing anything specific about the objects. But there's understanding something about the mind, about the awareness. How is the awareness working? Is it taking in a broad experience? Is it narrowing down and looking on one thing? Is it like a panoramic wide-angle lens versus a macro lens? Is it flowing from one object to another? These are things that we can know about the awareness through how objects are met with awareness. And then, just to address the question about Andy Olensky saying that the mind cannot be aware of itself, only its objects. I would have to read what Andy was saying there and know the context in which that was being said. Um, But the Buddha clearly talks about mindfulness, being able to know the functioning of mind whether that's because it's turning around and looking at it to me it feels much more, again, like it's stepped back and watching the functioning and not just like turning and going feeling or perception it's, it's, it's watching the whole show that those begin to be understood so there are things that we can know about the mind. The, the teaching on the five aggregates is clearly uh, the Buddha encouraging us to begin to understand how our minds work, watch how our minds work. And whether we say that those then become objects that we're looking at, it seems like it's a maybe it's sophistry, it's, 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 it's kind of, in a way, irrelevant. We can know the working of the mind through being with our experience. And that being with our experience and beginning to understand the workings of the mind leads to freedom. That's the point that the Buddha was most interested in. That beginning to recognize, in particular, the conditioned nature of experience and how the mind constructs, the mind constructs craving, the mind uh, constructs views and opinions and beliefs and then takes them to be reality. Watching that at work and seeing that it is our own minds doing that, creates the conditions for the mind to begin to recognize that's not so helpful. have more questions. Do you want more? (laughs) I'm seeing some yeses, okay. (laughs) I'll try to touch on two more because to me these are connected in some fashion. So I'll read them together and then speak to them. I don't obviously necessarily look like they go together, but in my mind they do. What exactly does causes and conditions mean? Would you give a specific example? And the second question, I have a difficult time appreciating anatta, not self. Can you give a concrete example? So this phrase, causes and conditions, I do say it a lot, I think, I think I inherited it from Joseph, I think he uses that phrase a lot, and uh, as I began realizing I was using it a lot, I began to uh, ask myself, well what do I mean by that? <laughs> so uh, I had a sense of what I mean by that. Um. Conditions, the way I mean this phrase, is that conditions are everything that kind of um, informs and influences the present moment experience. There's a vast array of conditions that contribute to how we are in this moment. There are conditions of uh, kind of like natural forces in the world, the weather and the planets and, and the tides and... Um, and these contribute to our present moment experience. The weather today is contributing to a certain degree of pleasant vedna, at least in my experience so you know so that that aspect that's a condition that impacts uh, our experience so there's the the kind of the natural systems that are conditions there's genetics that are conditions you know what we've inherited so I have apparently inherited some kind of genetic predisposition to not be able to eat bell peppers and the conditions in my body in this body when bell peppers are consumed are not pleasant so that's a kind of a genetic thing it's uh it's uh just this body doing its genetic thing and so of even those two sets of conditions now that's a vast set of conditions gill sometimes talks about you know the whole of the evolution of the universe up till this moment is influencing my experience it's vast the conditions that come into play we cannot fathom the conditions that come into play. And then there are other conditions around uh, how we have been conditioned. We use that word conditioning. You know, how has our culture conditioned us? How have our friends conditioned us? How have our parents? So all of the, the forces about how we interact with each other, all of the beliefs, the views, the ideas, all of that conditioning comes into play also. It's another set of forces at work, in our conditioning, in the conditions that are happening, and then there's um, the conditions of our own uh, uh, stream of choices that have been made in in our being, the stream of choices of of uh, you know responding to liking, not liking, uh, so responding, reacting to greed, aversion, confusion, or wisdom and generosity and love. So those sets of conditions that uh, create, that they are also participating, the choices that we've made up till now are also kind of contributing to the conditions of this moment. And so that's kind of the, the, the conditions side of the, of the uh, s- sentence, the statement. For me, the causes side is more looking at right here in this moment. How a- is this mind responding in this moment to the conditions that have been created? the 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 cause the direct cause of how we are in this moment is is based on how the mind is with the conditions that have come into play up until this moment and so we see we watch in in our practice and so the conditions from the beginning of the universe up until now are creating our experience and uh um If uh, if aversion is arising in the mind in this moment, the experience is likely to be felt as unpleasant. Maybe unpleasant multiplied. If there's a a kind of the conditions that have have come into being up to this point have created a an unpleasant situation, there's likely to be an aversion which multiplies the aversion. Or perhaps we're meeting it with mindfulness and wisdom, which creates a different set of conditions in the present moment, a different set of experiences. And so the direct cause of how we are in this moment, the way I, I look at that is the direct cause of our experience in the present moment is the, the kind of the sum of the experience in the present moment plus our relationship to it in the present moment. And the relationship to it has a huge impact on how that experience is felt in the present moment. And so when I say that our all that's happening, you know, there's just causes and conditions unfolding, that's what I'm talking about. And then the question around not-self... One of the, um, and I, pr- I will talk, I think I will probably talk more about this question. I'm just going to try to give you a, a flavor right now and not do the not self-talk because I don't have time. <laughs> but just a flavor of what that uh, teaching is pointing to. So, partly that, or or that teaching, partly points to the recognition that what is happening in our experience is a tumbling on of these causes and conditions. The processes of mind and body tumbling on. The aggregates, with or without mindfulness, doing their thing and we tend to through a process that the Buddha calls selfing or I making in my making we attribute a sense of self we it's like our minds create a sense of self around those that process What we can begin to recognize is that the uh, there there isn't a enduring entity here called I or me or mine, but there is a process that's unfolding so this this can be some of the confusion around not self that um, we think it means something doesn't exist, and it it's more that. The sense of self that we feel is uh, has some attributions to it that are not really there. An analogy. When we look at a rainbow. The rainbow, a rainbow is pretty ephemeral, and so this may be a good uh, uh, analogy for self because the self too, is a, it's, a, it's a construct of our minds. The sense of self is a construct of our minds and being a construct of our minds, it is not solid or stable or a thing at all. And so a rainbow is constructed, and we can see a rainbow based on conditions. To see a rainbow, there needs to be certain conditions in the atmosphere. There has to be a certain um, amount of rain in the air or water in the air. For us to see the uh, rainbow, we need to be in a position relative to where the sun is. Usually it's only at certain heights of the sun that we can see rainbows. And so there are these conditions that come into play to create the appearance of rainbow. It's an appearance. It's an appearance that's based on conditions. And our sense of self is kind of like that. It's an appearance. We can recognize, perhaps, an appearance of a sense of self. Maybe we can see this in our meditation. We're sitting and we have a memory of um, a particular relationship apparent perhaps and uh, a particular feeling of sense of self is felt in relationship to that memory. It's like that that uh, the sense of self is constructed in that moment in relationship and a lot of our senses of self are actually constructed in relationship. And then perhaps we notice you know, an hour later, or even actually sometimes it's a split second later, some other relationship is born. I'll tell my, my truck story. Um, I was on retreat, and watching my mind be its kind of familiar... Self-righteous. I know it all. Argumentative. At that point, forty-year-old. So I was. I was identifying with my age, my gender, my uh, intelligence my uh, sense of knowing the rightness of things and I was having an argument with somebody who was asking questions in the hall. In my mind. You know, somebody who who asked questions in the hall. I was correcting them and doing all of these like so I was I was suffering. I, I knew I was suffering. And I was noticing the feeling of being this Andrea. Boy, really felt like Andrea. And then I was doing walking meditation and then this big truck drove up and it was a noisy truck. It, it put on its air brakes. It made this big horrendous noise and the guy got out and slammed his door and opened the back and it was like bang, crash, boom. And I was just, I was right there. You might think aversion would have arisen, but it was more like I turned into a two-year-old. Wow. It's a truck! (laughs) And the distinction, the contrast in that moment between the sense of self of that 40-year-old argumentative Andrea that I was so convinced was real and right, just vanished and there was this two-year-old that was like delighting in the crash, boom, bang. We see the conditioned nature of our senses of self. The more we watch our minds, the more we recognize that our senses of self are relational and conditioned based on what's happening. We begin to see that one sense of self, that argumentative 40-year-old sense of self, and the it's-a-truck sense of self, they had nothing to do with ye- each other, nothing to do with each ye- And so we, we begin to be curious about, you know, the practice around it is just be curious about, well, what is, what is it that feels like me? You don't have to get rid of it, probably won't be able to, but <laughs> just, just look at it. What is it that feels like me right now? And you'll begin to see that it is just a changing show based on causes and conditions. Let's take a minute to sit.